17. And it comes to a very important and relevant moment in the life of Jesus. And it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Jesus already at the moment of this crucial event of his life has started predicting his death. As I told you, as soon as John, John the Baptist was martyrized, Jesus started seeing more and more obvious what's coming for him, what he has to do. Things which were sketchy in the future now suddenly became certain as the thing which had to be done, as the thing which would happen. Nevertheless, in the moment when he is assuming this, he automatically is like, in, re in his relationship with God, he is taking like one further step. You see, for example, before this, and before the events which are going to happen, Jesus never speaks clearly about the universal mission of his. He all the time says, I came for the children of Israel. Uh, I cannot go outside. I will not do this. That means he like seems to conceive of a limited mission for himself. And suddenly in the moment after John dies and after this episode which is called the transfiguration of Christ happens, which is fundamental, it's one of the cornerstones of Christianity, as you are going to see, after this moment, automatically, very clearly predicts his death, actually in one of the other Gospels, in Luke's or Mark's, I don't remember, this is happening first, and only then he comes and blurts out the truth, that now he will have to go to Jerusalem, there he will be killed, and he will raise the third day, and all the rest of the things. And therefore, this moment is crucial, it's related in all of them, it's placed like either immediately before or immediately after, it's like in the time when this happened, that's exactly where you see the turn in the mission of Jesus. It is exactly like Jesus at this point enters 
totally in a total communion and he manifests even more. It's like suddenly this divine nature shines through totally. It shines through to the level of the body. His face shone like the sun and even his clothes got incandescent. They got white and shining. What kind of energy, what kind of state you should be in what kind of relationship you should be with God that even your clothes should shine white and blinding and dazzling. Not only his flesh and body, you can say maybe he was wired up and with energy, but think, even the clothes were shining. This sounds like completely incredible. It's not the only time when this happens in history. Not only that Krishna shines in front of Arjuna with a light that is non-terrestrial, but the same thing happens often in the lives of the late Christian saints. When you read the lives of the fathers of the desert, you find crazy stories like this. Like there was one old man who was a very holy old man, and when he was about to pass away, the whole, all the monks from the near neighborhood, from the monastery, they gathered around him to attend him on his passing away. And they did prayers and all of them were very big and very strong spiritual practitioners. And while this guy was lying down on his deathbed, suddenly they could hear some, they could feel some energy and they could feel some beautiful smell like incense in the atmosphere. And then suddenly the, this old man said, the angels are approaching, the angels have come to greet me, they are here already. And then a few minutes passed and this man is going deeper and deeper into his death process and then suddenly there starts appearing a wonderful light in the room and then uh, this man simply brightens up and he says, the apostles of our Lord, all the twelve apostles, they come here to greet me. And then the things are getting completely out of hand. His face starts shining in an amazing way. And he says the Virgin and the John the Baptist are here. And suddenly there comes the moment of his death. And he shines like the sun, exactly like Jesus. He shines in such a way that the other monks, they had to hit their face. It was like unbearable. And in that moment, shine, transfigured with his shining he said, now our Lord Jesus has come to greet me, I'm going. And in that moment there was something like a poltergeist, there was something like an earthquake, there was something like a big shaking and a big noise, and then he passed away. And this was the way of dying of one of the great saints in ecstasy and light and transfigured and like this. This is so very classical. This is an essence of spirituality. It's like pushing it to the level where there is kind of... It's kind of so obvious. It was so obvious that when it actually happened, first of all, you can see that the others, for example, Peter, he gets raving. He starts babbling. He starts saying stupid things. He's in such a shock of what he sees 
that he starts saying things which are irrational. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. It's like, what is he talking about? He must know that this is ridiculous, what he is saying right now. And yet he's completely carried. And then later on they fall face down and they are completely terrified. It's kind of way beyond what the nerves of a human being can take. This moment of transfiguration, in a yogic way, it means a crucial moment in the life of Jesus. It is the moment when Jesus fully blossoms. He is like in his full Baba Samadhi. He is fully God in this moment. And it is the moment when he assumes completely his planetary mission of pushing it to the bottom, of going it all the way, that from this moment on, he, there is no more turning back. This man is going to do what nobody in the history of this planet really did as far as that in this way. And that is why this moment is considered crucial. It is considered the definitory moment and it is considered the moment when Jesus indeed is divine. As you can see the effect is outfold because it's Baba Samadhi. It happens in the body, it's an effect in the Prakriti and actually the effect is in the outer world. There appears a cloud which is a symbol of God. They can hear a voice, either that voice is physical or they can hear it like in a trance. And moreover, there they are the holographic projections, the visions, if you prefer, of Moses and of Elijah, like materialized. Suddenly, Jesus is in connection with the prophets of the old lineage. Moses is there who started this lineage, or at least continued it from the older ones, from the real, real old ones, from Noah and all those real, real old ones. And he is with Elijah, which is another pillar of this tradition. And now, with whom he has a special connection, because Elijah was John the Baptist, if you remember the clear statement. And basically, here he is. He makes the connection with the tradition. You see, the lineage is there. And at the same time, now he is ready to take over. Now he is ready to give to the world a new covenant. He is about to put a new cornerstone. He is about to change the foundation of everything in that way. That is why, uh, funny enough, the Christian mystics, they've had a talent, they've had an intuition of how to rapport themselves to Jesus. You see, for many Christian mystics, it was a matter of doing what the yogis would call samyama, an identification with Christ with Christ. It is like the Catholic mystic Thomas Akempis who wrote this famous book which is called Imitatio de Jesus Christus, the imitation of Jesus Christ. Basically the whole book is how to be like Jesus, how to become like Jesus. It's a set of meditations and spiritual uh, experiments of how to identify with Jesus. Basically, that book is an excellent Western example of Samyama. That book simply says, do Samyama with Jesus. See Jesus in front of you and become Jesus. See Him entering in your body. See yourself entering in His body. Try to feel that you and Jesus become one. That's basically Samyama a la lettre. It's Samyama like in Patanjali's uh, text. And basically, 
the Christian mystics, they have tried indeed to contemplate Jesus, to contemplate the Virgin, to become one with them. In yoga, this is expressed by the idea which Paramahamsa Yogananda expressed very beautifully as a form of Samyama in Akasha, that all these historical events which happen, they are somewhere in Akasha. And if you have them in front of your eyes, then it's like you make a connection in Akasha. It's like you view, you view the film of the event and see what has happened to Jesus. And basically it's like you do Trataka, it's like you do Shambhavi Mudra, it's like you do the trick of the rope. You see it and see it and see it again and again and again. And basically you start feeling there, you start being there. If every day for half an hour you see Jesus in front of you, inside you, you in Jesus, whatever, one being there, of course this triggers a phenomenon of communion. Only that different mystics, depending on the quality of their mysticism, they have tried to catch Jesus at different moments of his life which seemed to them significant. For example, for the Catholic mystics, most of the Catholic mysticism is trying to catch Jesus on the cross. That's why even the Catholic crosses, they have a Jesus added onto it. It's not an abstract cross, it's Jesus crucified. And in all the Catholic environment, you all the time find Christ crucified. Naturalistic images of a skinny bearded man that is supposed to be Jesus with a thorn crown on his head, nailed on a cross. That's kind of the main image. That's where we want to look. That, that is Jesus. Why is he important there? Because that's the moment when he saved the world. That's the, mo that's the act by which he turned the history of the world and took that's the supreme sacrifice which nobody dared to take to such an extent such as Jesus did. And therefore, that's the most worthy act, that's the cornerstone of the human salvation, that's the turning point of history. This makes that when the Catholic mystics advised pray to Jesus, they said, uh, see Jesus on the cross. That's the moment when He saves you, right? That's the moment when He takes your sins away. And you pray to Jesus on the cross. That is why, for example, only in Catholicism, you find this phenomenon of stigmata, that people get marks of crucifixion in their hands and feet and whatever, because it's a connection in Akasha with the moment of the crucifixion of Jesus. They want to catch Jesus in his trajectory, in his meteoric orbit through this life. They want to catch Jesus at the point of crucifixion. That's the time, the zero time, the, the reference moment for them. The other, especially in Spanish Catholicism, they have even modified this because they have turned the mysticism in a more accessible because Jesus is difficult to feel and difficult to access being more abstract, but it's more easy to feel the feminine aspect, which is the Virgin Mary. And therefore it's more easy to get the grace of Virgin Mary, because the feminine powers are always more close to you, they are more easy to understand, to reach. And therefore they have the Marian mystic, the mystic of praying to the Virgin Mary, who can pray further for you to Jesus, so you don't need to go all the way, you go two steps via the Virgin Mary, and then for them, they want to catch the Virgin Mary where it's the famous Pietà. It's the moment when the Virgin holds dead Jesus in her arms 
and she cries her heart out that look what these bastards did, they killed my son, they killed the godman, they killed whatever. So that tearing love for Jesus, they say you should reach to be one with Virgin Mary and to feel the same love and the same pain which Mary felt while holding the dead body of her child in her arms. This is how you should love Jesus. That is why they advise, do Samyama with Mary. The Orthodox Christianity, on the other hand, that is the Eastern type of Christianity, they were more mystical oriented and they didn't want to relate to this. So they simply thought their great mystics, Gregory, Palamas and others much before them, uh, they simply thought and thought where, which is in the life of Jesus the moment where you see God mostly. Well, that's the transfiguration. That is why in the Christian Orthodox Eastern mysticism, the whole art of prayer is meant to put in touch with the moment of transfiguration of Christ. They want to catch in Akasha, not so much the crucifixion or the Pieta of Mary, but they want to catch the transfiguration. You should do Samyama with Jesus, they say, in the second when he transfigured himself and shone with light. You should see the light of transfiguration. The supreme success in prayer is supposed for them to be a state of ecstasy where you feel and see Jesus through the heart and you see this light. If you see this light, then you have reached there. This light is called the Taboric light because this scene has happened on Mount Tabor today in Israel. And this transfiguration is supposed to, uh, this light, which is not the light of a lighting instrument, it's not the light of a torch or the light of anything like this, is not a man-made light, but this is the light of the light, the self-shining light, the light from inside. This is the light of Brahman. This is the light of the Spirit. This light is supposed to be the essence of divinity, that God at some level is light. It is, as I said, even the Kabbalah claims that the Holy Spirit of God, the breath of God, is at the lower level when you express it, Ein Sof Aur, and Sof Aur, Aur, the light, infinite light. So basically, uh, this light would be exactly the Holy Spirit, it is the mystical vision of it, and Jesus shown full power with this Shakti of God, with this Holy Spirit, with the formidable power of it. That is why um, I agree in a certain way that uh, the most mystical, the most metaphysical and the most spiritual interpretation or uh, interpolation of Jesus is indeed in the moment of transfiguration. Should you wish to catch in Akasha Jesus at some moment of his life and give him a hug, should you wish to identify with Jesus at some moment of his life, let this be the moment of transfiguration. That's the ground zero. That's simply the reference moment in the life of Jesus, in the moment when you find him fully manifesting his divinity. And that is why the moment of transfiguration is very important. Countless monasteries in Christianity, they have this anniversary day, the day of the transfiguration of the Lord. <coughs> if I remember correctly in the Eastern Christianity that is in Russia, Greece, Constantinopolis, the Eastern European countries and so on, this is celebrated in August, in early August, the 6th or the 7th of August. 
I don't remember which one of them, the 6th of August. So, um, this moment of transfiguration, this, this day of transfiguration, is a very special one, and all the great mystics after a certain century and on who got this, when they did the prayer of the heart, when they did all these methods for enlightenment, this is where they wanted to shine. That's why this old man in the moment when he died, he shone like the sun. He was with Jesus. In that moment, he was identified with Jesus. And the light in the room, even physically, increased according as higher and higher were coming. So in the moment when Jesus came, the last of them, as the cherry on top of the cake, as the ultimate, when Jesus came to greet him and to say, okay, leave your body, now you are with me, he shone like the sun. He was one with Jesus. In that moment, he took his prize. He took his ultimate prize. He was in the ultimate samadhi, just as Jesus was, and he simply shone with light. Such a phenomenon is somehow related like with a diamond body. It is something so impressive, it is related with bhava, samadhi. It is related with a shining through of the power of God, through this miserable matter out of which our bodies is made. We are not made of clay anymore. We are made of light because we shine as the sun. This is transfigured. It's like tantric transfiguration where a woman turns into a goddess through that transfiguration. In the same way, this is a self-transfiguration. I am transfiguring myself in something so divine that I start shining light. I start shining like the sun. Therefore, this is an ultimate, this is an archetypal moment. Nobody can hope to reach something more than this. That means, should you ever do meditation until you start shining like the sun, you should know that you can stop calmly because you have reached what Jesus has reached and you have reached basically everything. In this way, this moment is fundamental. It is the moment when Jesus fully assumes his mission. It's clearly from this moment on that he will refer to the whole world. He becomes much greater. And this is like a test. It's like a deal between him and God. It's like, I'm going to do this, and therefore I'm going to have all the power. It's like suddenly Jesus, especially after he goes through this ordeal, and then he gets crucified, and then he gets resurrected to the miraculous intervention of God, suddenly rules. He becomes king of the world. He becomes like he is on a par and more, of course, with the king of Shambhala himself. He holds in his hands the destiny of this planet. Either people admit or not, Jesus rules in a mysterious way because he is given by God a right. Try to think about all the people, billions of people, who along the centuries and millennia, in the last 2,000 years, they have been baptized, they have been married, they have been <coughs> confessed, they have been forgiven, they have been anointed, they have been given monastic vows, they have been given funeral guidance and everything, and all of it with rituals in the name of one man. What kind of power that man should have reached for in the face of God, so that God should give him carte blanche completely, like total warrant to move the world, to spin the world around the little finger, like this. So in this way, 
basically what I'm saying here, this is the moment. This is the moment when Jesus goes on the last hundred meters. It's the kind of the last straight line of the race. In this moment Jesus is fully wired up. He has become God. This story is funny enough related in a slightly <coughs> different way by Thomas. In the Gospel of Thomas, of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find a slightly different mention in which Thomas insists that he was part of this group of disciples. Here there are mentioned only Peter, James and John and actually Thomas claims that he was part of the crowd. I don't remember exactly if one of the others he claims was not by exclusion of one of the others or actually he claims he was the fourth of the team. But fact is that there are small inexactities. Thomas claims to have been one of those who had witnessed this and actually after witnessing it he claims that Jesus told him something fundamental which he refused to share even with the others uh, because it was like too much, it was kind of completely over the top it was a statement which simply puzzled uh, him and the others were kind of perhaps too narrow-minded still to be able to take such a great leap. fact is that this is a great leap because Jesus suddenly he goes on a mountain and there he shines on his, full, on his last straight line. There appears a divine thing and he talks with Moses and Elijah. Question. Why did he need, I mean, perhaps he could meet telepathically, right? But this is a full Baba Samadhi, it's a Prakriti thing. Those divine spirits, they manifest in full body thing, so the other disciples can see them and be completely, be so impressed by it that Peter says, I'm going to build a hut for each and every one of you. It's like kind of these people are here to stay and Jesus is shining like the sun in a way which is incomprehensible, it's like suddenly he's made of light, even his clothes and everything, he shines uh, with God's power, and uh, in that moment you can ask yourself, what did Jesus have to speak with Elijah and Moses? It's obviously that it's something about the destiny of mankind, the destiny of this revelation of one God, which started with Moses in the old days and with the older prophets, with Abraham and Noah and all the others. And this famous revelation is now having a destiny. It has been passing through Moses, it has been passing through Elijah, and now it has come to the point where it passes through Jesus, who is going to give it a new life, a new step in the history of mankind. So in this way, this makes suddenly Jesus a landmark. Jesus becomes the next landmark in the history of this one revelation and therefore it's obvious that he has to go he has to do something remarkable and something remarkable he did through his life in this way so at the same time of course you are having this thing that Elijah is always included there because John the Baptist is supposed to have been Elijah and Jesus is so close to him in this life they are even born as cousins only six months difference between their birthdays and uh, uh, Jesus relies so much on the witness of John the Baptist Elijah to be promoted and this tradition remains so strong in Christianity that even in the book of Revelation where we are announced about the end of time is the same pattern 
that Elijah comes first to announce the second coming of Jesus, whoever or whatever this Elijah will be, and then shortly after, Jesus comes in the second coming. So it's the same tandem, Elijah and Jesus, the gate breaker who is Elijah, and the glorious ones coming after Jesus. It's like a wonderful comradeship, a wonderful spiritual team of always being together and thus uh, changing the history of the world. So in this way, they have all this, and finally there is this final episode with the voice of God confirming what this is. We don't know if this was a physical voice, it has never been recorded on a tape recorder, so we don't know what it is, but fact is that people confirm that they heard it in their heart, that they saw it as a confirmation. Uh, surely, uh, then after, the whole phenomenon goes, it lasts while it lasts, Jesus is thus shining in his full, unaltered glory. It is basically said that the same light of Tabor is the light which the angel brought at the day of the resurrection. Then when finally Jesus played dumb and was crucified, and then he came up shining, this shining in the moment when the angel brought him up is the same light. Then he came back again and he shone with the same light. The same light he shines in the days after his resurrection when he tells to Mary Magdalene, do not touch my body because I am in this special condition. And the same light is supposed to shine when he finally ascends to heaven, that he simply fades, he simply flies, fades away, and he dematerializes, going into the light, going into the rainbow. It's the same light, and remember that this light is the basis of Christian prayer. The great Christian mystics, they have tried to see this light. For example, even in the Catholic Church, where they focused on other aspects, they still came to this. This was conclusion of prayer. Saint Teresa of Avila, this is how she became enlightened. She saw this immaterial light, a light which is not made of light. It is the light of the light. It is the light behind the light. I once spoke with somebody who saw this light in a state of samadhi, by looking at the yantra and she described that she saw this light and that she was looking at the yantra and then suddenly everything in the room, the air and the yantra and her own flesh while she was not seeing it directly became like made of gold. Everything was like shining gold and golden light and she was in a universe of golden light and then after this suddenly the material bottom of this light, the support like the yantra the flesh, everything which was material, disappeared. And there remained only like a shadow of all the reality, but made of golden light, in which everything was shining with golden light. The same thing Ramakrishna experiences Kali as a golden light, and then everything is light. His cousin Hridai, his disciple and cousin Hridai, when finally he asks and asks and copies and monkeys Ramakrishna and asks and he says I want to have the same ecstasy and finally Ramakrishna prays to Kali and he says mother help him see what I saw and suddenly Kridai is in Samadhi and he's in Samadhi and he sees with surprise that everything is golden light and everything is like made of the sunshine everything is like liquid gold and he jumps up and he says, Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna, I've seen it. Everything is like, look at me, I'm made of golden light. And then Ramakrishna, annoyed by this manifestation, 
He says, you fool, I'm seeing this every day. Why are you trying to make, why do you make so much fuss about it? And he says, mother, stop it, because this fool is going to disturb everybody with his enthusiasm about it. And then the same, the same, the state of samadhi stops instantaneously, and this guy falls back on his ass, and he says, wow, you know, that was good. Samadhi, seeing this golden light, seeing this uncreated light, which comes from prayer, which is not really light, remember. Many people have mixed it up with light, but it is something else. This is the mistake of some Western occultists, including uh, Western magic schools, even Alistair Crowley and his kind of masons and others, who claim that this light is like the fire. You know, if you look at a candle and do trataka on a candle, then you start seeing all these rainbows of light and circles of light, and then you can see it with the eyes closed, and it's like visualizing the subtle streams of colors and seeing streams of energy. The light which Jesus shines with is not astral light, it's not the color of the astral body. That astral light is a color of Manipura Chakra of the third level, of the level of fire. And it is not the divine light of the Holy Spirit. It is not the light which shines in Ramakrishna and in Jesus and in Krishna. And therefore, there is a big confusion. Manipuristic, clairvoyant people, a la Crowley or a la Liedbitter or others of their interested type of uh, kind, they just simply thought that if they would close their eyes and see some light, this means they are enlightened or they see the life of Jesus or they see of the life of others. And for example, the old Christian fathers, the fathers of the desert, as well as Shivananda, by the way, just to see that that's universal, they claim don't pay any attention to these visions of light which come in your meditation because many of them are inspired by demons who are simply trying to disturb your meditation by giving all kinds of beautiful visions, and those visions are not the Holy Spirit. They are not the Taboric light. The Taboric light, it doesn't feel like the astral light, like the light in your dreams. It's something completely different. That's why they called it the light of the light. You want to see that that's universal? One of the most famous treatises of Taoism, which has survived time, and which describes how to open the heart and Sahasrara, and how to reach enlightenment, is called the secret of the golden flower. Because when you reach it, you are supposed to have the feeling of a golden flower on top of your head, and to be bathed in a shower of golden light, like the sun. You want to see more? Morihei Ueshiba, the father of Aikido, in the moment when he got enlightened, he described his enlightened that a spirit of the akami, of the color of gold, he came in his garden, he was walking through the garden and suddenly he saw a spirit of the color of gold shining like the sun and filling the whole garden and his body and everything with gold. So he felt in an ecstasy seeing that everything was golden in light. You want more? When Saint Seraphim of Sarov gave Samadhi to one of his friends who was a layman, Saint Seraphim of Sarov had a strange friendship to a man who had been an officer in the army and had been an invalid. He was shot and he lost the use of one of his legs, so he was lame. And then Saint Seraphim of Sarov did a miracle and healed him. And this man simply spent most of his life like a puppy after Saint Seraphim. He became like his devotee, his disciple, although he was not a monk. He used to be a captain in the army. And funny enough, Seraphim liked him so much, he said there are many monks in the monastery 
who are hypocrites and they are just doing all kind of crazy things. And he said, I don't like them. These people will go to hell or whatever because they are just using religion as hiding their own thing. But he liked Motovilov. He liked the guy that he healed. And one day, Motovilov, there is a famous story, any one of you, I think it's on the internet, you can find it as well, the famous dialogue of Motovilov of St. Seraphim of Sarov, in which Motovilov is asking, it's, it's Siberia, this guy's talking Novosibirsk or wherever, somewhere in one of those really cold places, and it's a day where it snows, they are in the middle of snow, in the forest, you can imagine, the Russian snow, the Russian forest, and there they are talking religion in the middle of the whole thing. And Motovilov is asking Seraphim of Sarov, describe what is the purpose of the Christian life, what is the purpose of prayer, where are we trying to get? And Seraphim is not answering to him with stupid theological answers and this thing like you should do good, you should come to church, you should be a good citizen and shit like this. Seraphim is a real mystic. He comes directly with the thing. He says this is a transformation of the human being. Then he says you have to accumulate the human, the Holy Spirit. He says by prayer you simply get filled up with Holy Spirit. And Motovilov is asking what is this Holy Spirit? How do we get filled up with it? And then Seraphim says, I cannot explain that to you, but I will show you. And in the next moment, this guy experiences the same thing as the disciples of Jesus and as the people in that hut with the fathers of the desert. He says, suddenly, the face of Seraphim started shining like the sun, and I felt I could not look at his face because it was simply blinding me. And then I noticed that everything around, including the snowflakes and everything, had become like made of gold. It was warm. I didn't feel the cold anymore. Everything was like, a, I was like in a soap bubble. We were in the middle of an island of peace and love. And everything, including seraphim and I and the snow and everything, was shining with the light of the sun. It was like a mild golden shine, blissful. And I was completely blissed out and everything. I'm not even managing to render completely what he says there. That's the taboric light, that's the uncreated light, a light which is beyond the astral light. Remember, never make this mistake of some manipuristic magicians and people belonging to secret societies who because they had a little bit of light in a dream or because they have clairvoyance or because they did Srataka on a candle and because they saw some light phenomena, they believe automatically that any light that you see is the Holy Spirit and it is the Taboric light. That thing is way beyond the astral light. That is a light which is causal and divine. It is a light which shines directly. It's the energy of the Holy Spirit fully. It is the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is energy after all. It's the breath of God. It is the ultimate energy of God. And it manifests as the light of the light. It appears like one step beyond light. It's not light. It is something which makes up the light. It's like the essence of light. It's like the concealed essence of light. That's the meditation which results from the transfiguration of Christ. That is why the transfiguration of Christ is essential in spirituality. Because that's where you try to reach. 
Gregory Palamas and all the fathers who did meditation with the prayer of the heart, they all the time speak about the uncreated light, the light of the Holy Spirit, the Taboric light, as this being a formidable manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And whenever you read St. Peter of Damascus or St. Isaac of Cyrus, Syria or whatever, they all of them come back and back to the same. The same is about the great yogis. Morihewe Shiva discovered it, the great masters of Tao discovered it, the great gurus of India discovered it. It's there. It's the golden light. It is this taboric light. Other mystics have described it. Rumi speaks about it. Uh, Omar Khayyam speaks about it. It's, a, it's an experience which is universal. Saint Teresa of Avila, she saw it as well, and this is how she got enlightened, and she, moreover, she felt it like a sound. She is the one who puts it together with like sounds like of the mantras. When she felt this, when she saw this light, this infinite light, she at the same time heard the mantric sound corresponding to it, and she got completely enlightened. She describes it, if you'll ever read the inner castle, Saint Teresa of Avila calls her, her revelatory book, about her visions, the inner castle, the inner castle of God, in which you go inside yourself and there are many rooms that God helps you to explore. And when she describes her mystic experience, St. Teresa of Avila says that she felt this sound falling like waterfalls of sound on top of her head. She obviously felt it in Sahasrara and it felt like a waterfall was flowing on her head. This sound, which is a waterfall of sound, is nothing else but the famous nada. This is the nada which you use for laya yoga, and therefore this is the highest pure nada beyond the mantras, which according to Kashmir Shaivism tradition corresponds to Sahasrara. And therefore we are having here a perfect equivalence. Nada, the waterfall, the ocean of sound in Sahasrara and this golden light, this liquid sunshine light which funny enough in yoga we associate more with Ajna Chakra but at the same time it seems that this golden light packs in its sponge also the shining white, the incandescent white this electric blue white the shining white, the bright white stream of energy as we call it in yoga and therefore it's a mixture of both which gives at the same time the aspects of compassion and love and at the same time it gives the full aspect of manifestation of divinity. That is why should any one of you want to do some yama to Jesus, should any one of you want to pray and see Jesus in glory, should any one of you want to feel what the energy of the divine is, that's where you find it. In the transfiguration of Christ in this moment of Akasha, that's where you find the full manifestation of that divine energy. Therefore, this is the uncreated light for which all the mystics have aspired and you can also have it through prayer as well as, of course, the methods of yoga as exactly they led Ramakrishna to the same goal and Shivananda, of course, they can lead you exactly to the same thing. It's not always that God manifests as light. That means there are other manifestations of the divine consciousness which can be separate, but this is one of the standard ones and it is the one where the Shakti aspect, where the Bhava aspect 
the Baba Samadhi, where the externalized aspect, where the Prakriti aspect is also involved. So it's like the full unfoldment of the divine power in this world as well, where everything is nothing else but what it actually is ultimately, light. We are made of light, nature is made of light, this whole universe is just a game of light, it's a light projection of the divine. And therefore, for this reason, the moment of transfiguration is to be meditated upon. It is archetypal. It's always a reference. Always when you think about the revelation of Jesus, never forget to feel, to try to get in communion with this moment of transfiguration. The Christian mystics considered that the method which put them best in touch with this was, of course, the prayer of the heart, should any one of you wish to try that. In yoga, Paramahamsa Yogananda, who was very close to these things because of his loving nature and his affinities to Jesus, he describes also the same experience as a result of his practicing of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So his practice of Nirvikalpa Samadhi is that. Again, the experience is universal. The more I stay on it, the more I hear or I remember about people experiencing it just the same. For example, now I remember that Sundar Singh, Sadhu Sundar Singh, the Punjabi guy who became enlightened by Jesus, he described exactly the same. When he saw Jesus in front of him, Jesus was golden light, an immaterial light, a light which was beyond light, and that light was the light of bliss, the light of God, the light of enlightenment. Other and other traditions go into this. Again, I don't need to say more than this because it's obvious what this experience is all about. This is indeed one of the practical cornerstones of prayer and of enlightenment in this way. And of course, Jesus again in his own tricky way, which he always, he always does it, he heals people and tells them, don't tell I did it, pretend God did it, go in the temple. He practices this modesty in so many ways. He says, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. He already knows that he will be raised from the dead. That means things are, at least at the level of the Spirit, fully clear. Now, of course, there has to come the heart part, which is actually going through it, implementing it. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Because there was a tradition according to which before the Messiah, Elijah should come. And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Basically, he says, I'm going to be killed the same way there is. And actually here the sentence, explanatory sentence, goes. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Again, this is one of those paragraphs of the Bible which is kind of unavoidably raising the issue of reincarnation. Jesus says, Elijah came, they did not recognize him, they did him a lot of shit, and the same they are going to do to me. And actually I spoke about John the Baptist. This being, it means Elijah was John the Baptist which simply means one man can reincarnate as another one, and so on. 
when the Christian theologians were faced with this, like, ah, what have you got to say now? Look, even in your censored Bible, this is black on white there, that Jesus said so. Nevertheless, uh, the theologians say, well, this is a metaphoric expression. We can't take it literally. Jesus wanted to say that John the Baptist is like a second Elijah. He is like Elijah which is quite bollocks because not only this time, but at another time before, Jesus literally said that this Elijah, that this John the Baptist is nobody else but Elijah. So this is one of the typical reincarnation arguments given by Gnostic Christianity and others, saying that, look, Jesus clearly alluded to reincarnation, like in the case of John the Baptist and Elijah. There is no doubt about that. <coughs> So, this is a contentious point in the Bible, a strife statement in the Bible. Then we continue. When they came to the crowd, so they have been on the mountain, right? This has happened in front of very few. Either Thomas were with them or not. The canonic Bibles don't mention. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Basically, this is some seizures. It looks very much like epileptic or other seizures where the man would fall unconscious in fire and water. According to the medicine of that time, as well as according to Ayurvedic and Tibetan medicine, this is a form of being possessed by the demons. So the poor young man would probably today be diagnosed with epilepsy, but in the terms of those days he was classified as being possessed by some demon. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. He's kind of distressed that people cannot do it without him. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. So as you can see, this is indeed a magic power beyond comprehension. He simply rebukes the demon. It's the essence of exorcism involved in this. This is what exorcism is. When somebody has a demonic possession, one stronger than the demon must be able to chase that demon out of the person. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private, because now they were ashamed, and anyhow they were always getting separate instruction, like more than the average person, and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the essence of it all. First of all, he tells them, I am stronger than you at faith. Let's take a Tibetan story to show you how this faith is. Two great Tibetan masters, they meet, I don't know, in the 16th century or 15th century or whatever. One of them is Drukpa Kunlei. Drukpa means from Bhutan, the, Bhuta, the Bhutanese Kunlei. That's his name, Kunlei. And there he is called the Divine Madman. 
His history has been translated in English by Keith Dowman, uh, Tibetanologist publisher, exactly under this name, The Divine Madman. His story is a delicious story because he is a very unorthodox Buddhist enlightened being. He is like Milarepa and like all the others, but he is a bit crazy, he is a bit wild. And this Drukpa Kunle does all the forbidden things, he does the kinky tantric things, bit of violent things which shock any understanding. Uh, does uh, uh, he sometimes uses a vulgar language and four-letter words, plenty of them, and stuff like this, and nevertheless he is a fully, very fully enlightened being. And at some point he meets and the peasants around, this is how people are, they always want to see who is better or whatever, they make a little bit of a competition. He meets with the famous Karmapa. Today, in the 21st century, we are witnessing the life of a young man who is called the 17th Karmapa, and who is supposed to be the reincarnation of a great spirit who deceased in 1982 or 83, who was the 16th Karmapa, and there was a 14th, and, well... In the 16th century, I don't remember which karmapa, the 6th karmapa, the 7th karmapa, the 4th karmapa, I don't remember one of them, one of the early karmapas of history, which all of them are supposed to be super potent to an entity, a super enlightened Buddha, uh, one of the real pillars of the Tibetan spirituality. This karmapa, he meets with Drukpa Kunle, and the peasants, simply want to have them a friendly spiritual contest. It appears that they had this habit that without competition, not really that I'm better or I want to put you down, but like let's meditate together, let's argue together, let's see what you can do, let, you know, like let's confront our realization a little bit, maybe we can learn something from it, and maybe the onlookers can also learn something from it. So it was not done with adversity or with enmity, it was done in friendship, in a spiritual, in the spirit of a spiritual comradeship. And there they are, and they do all kinds of paranormal things in which uh, the karma path seems to be a little bit better, and then they have the final test, that's why I came to it. The final test is that they have to walk on a moonbeam. Basically it's night time, they open the window and you can see moonbeams like this. Who can walk on a moonbeam? Like on a bridge, to walk on a moonbeam. What do you need for that? Jesus says it. You need faith. It's like walking on water. When Peter walked on water and he doubted, he immediately fell in the water and Jesus says, why do you doubt? It's all about believing 100%. That's the laws of suggestion and self-suggestion in yoga. Those of you who have learned that already. It's all about a complete self-hypnosis. If you believe that you can walk on water, you can walk. It is as simple as that. But you have to believe from the core of your being and 100%. And these two Tibetan masters, they walk on moonbeams and the one under the feet of the Karmapa bends a little bit. It's like it's impossible not to believe that you have no weight and that a moonbeam can... And it's enough for your mind to believe that you are a bit heavy and like the moonbeam is so thin and so frail that it will like bend under your weight. It's a mind creation. It's because you believe it should be so. But it's like your faith is 99%, not 100. You are not able to clear everything 100%. 
and then uh, the Karmapa shakes his hand, of course they are not shaking hands in those days, that's a Freemasonic convention, and uh, basically Karmapa congratulated him in the end, and he said in the use of paranormal powers, I am better than you, but in the clear consciousness, you are a little bit better than I am. Because like he praised him, he said, your consciousness is so clear that you could walk on a moonbeam better than I could, which sounds like completely, completely incredible. Well, that's a wonderful pastime to see if you can walk on a moonbeam, uh, yoga entertainment. But the fact is that the whole thing is about faith. Jesus, coming back to it, he says, this, you need to have faith. And he describes the paragraph which is fundamental and has left like one of the syntax of the Western spirituality, like one of the essential symbols of Jesus' message, the one with the mustard seed. The mustard seed is really small. There are many symbols in this. The same symbol is used in the Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, uh, a thousand nights and one night Arabian tales when Alibaba is trying to open it, and they have this formula, sesame, open up. Sesame is another small seed, after all, and the thing about sesame, open up, to make the mountain open, is faith. It's an allusion to the mustard seed. The sesame, which then doesn't work anymore, is the thing that if you don't have faith, you can do it. That story, read it again now in this life, it's a matter of faith. You remember that this faith is not always related with God. Jesus wants to make it related with God. But remember that it's not necessarily God that makes you walk on water. You can theoretically walk on water without involving God in it, if you believe that you can walk on water. That means faith is not enough to define spirituality. Faith is just a thing which generates cities, power. That means with faith you can move the mountains. But if you move them in the name of God or in the name of something else, that's something different. It is said in the mystical tradition of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, that the devil also has great paranormal powers, which means that perhaps the devil can move a mountain as well. The devil has faith. Only that the devil's faith is not a clean faith, is not a faith anchored in God. Jesus always wants to put the paranormal, the parapsychological, with God. You can walk on water because of God, which is not strictly true. From, a, from the standpoint of a Buddhist psychology, it's all a mind power. Your yoga would say, these are cities. They have nothing to do with God. You can walk on water and fly through the air and be a black magician at the same mm -hmm. time. It's a bit stretching it. It's truly a bit stretching it. But you can imagine that the devil would be able to walk on water or fly through the air at the same time. And that's not a clean power. It's not a divine power. Therefore, remember this implication. Faith is not enough. That's why later in the letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says there is faith, there is hope, and there is love. But the greatest and the one which is essential of this is love. Because he says, I can have faith as much as I can move the mountains. And if I have got no love, I'm still nothing. That means faith 
there can be a faith. Many people will use the word faith as faith in God. But look at the formulation. It's like self-confidence. It's faith in yourself. It's faith in the fact that you can do it. It's faith in the fact that you can walk on a moonbeam. Faith originally is not necessarily coming from God. It's only if you want with humbleness to say I can walk on a moonbeam thank to God. That's because it's like you consecrate the glory to God. You offer the, com the acting to God because you choose to do so. But God's truth is that you might walk on a moonbeam without God as well, but then you might walk on a moonbeam like the devil, for example, and that will be a different power, a different integration. Therefore, faith is not completely there. The yogis consider that faith, this faith about which he speaks, is actually coming a lot from Ajna Chakra, the laws of suggestion and self-suggestion, and this complete way of believing whatever you wish to believe is Ajna Chakra. It's tapping the potential of the conscious and subconscious mind to the bottom. That's exploring, controlling the Ajna Chakra. That is why, again, you can say that the demon has faith because he has powers to walk through fire and to do whatever he does. That requires faith. He believes he can do it. But faith is not enough. Ah, faith in God, which means faith with humbleness and surrender, Ishvara Pranidana, that's something else. But faith taken as a mental power is not that. If you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you'll take to the mountain move, and the mountain will move. Remember, the word God is not mentioned in this statement. Jesus never says that God participates to the movement of this mountain. He says, you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you tell to the mountain, move, and the mountain will move. That is why you need to add something to that faith to make it divine. You can say <coughs> that yoga, all the yoga practice, by developing the chakras, by developing the energies, by developing this belief, I can do it, by slowly, slowly building it, Yoga is a builder of faith. A yogi who has done three years of yoga is believing in himself and in his capacity to walk on a moonbeam or to move the mountains much more than three years before. You can say from this standpoint that yoga is like a method of self-suggestion. If you can make yourself believe, you have won. And if you are still skeptical, you lost. Because it's all a method of believing. Believing that you can dance on fire. Believing that you can do what you do. If you believe that you can heal with your hands, you can heal with your hands. And if you believe that you can uh, chase out demons, you can chase out demons. Only that ultimately your test is in the real life. Because there have been people who took LSD and they believed that they can fly. But apparently they didn't believe well enough because they jumped through the window and splashed on the curb. They splashed on the asphalt of the street and died. Therefore their belief was not enough. Remember that even when they believed under drugs or whatever they could do something, that's not enough. We are talking about a belief stronger than that. The only situation in daily life where such a belief can be induced if you haven't done yoga is hypnosis. 
under hypnosis, a hypnotizer can hypnotize you so deeply that he can make you believe whatever he wants you to believe. If he wants you to believe that his apple is an onion, or that his onion is an apple, or that a cold coin is hot, or that a hot coin is cold, or that you can stay stiff for two hours like a board of wood, that's faith. He convinces you. This is coming from Ajna, and remember that the demonic entities, the evil one, Lucifer, which has a star in his forehead, like being on Ajna, the number six out of seven or whatever, still can have that. The power of faith is not necessarily divine. It is a neutral power, which can be used to the good, but it can also be used into wicked ways. That is why it has to be seasoned with hope and especially with love, as the Apostle says. If I have faith and I have got no love, I am still nothing. I can move the mountains, but I can be a demon that moves the mountains. There are many demons that are very powerful and they can do a lot of things. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So he announced it clearly, <coughs> apparently. Although they could not, even the disciples who saw all those wonderful things, and imagine the resonance to be in the presence of a man who does that and tells you, you can walk on the sea, come towards me. It's kind of what a, but the mind is such a crazy monkey. The mind is such an ugly monkey. You can walk on the water today and tomorrow if you forget or if you are doubtful, you can't walk anymore. You lost your faith. This is the problem, that this thing has to become stabilized. That's a perfect mental control we are talking about. The final part of the 17th paragraph, after which we'll stop, because this was fundamental. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to, the, to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? It's like the religious tax of today. Everybody was taxed. Yes, he does, they replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find the fourth drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. <coughs> Basically, here what Jesus says is very twisted. He gives a parable. He says, if the king is taxing the population, does his own son have to pay? No, the son is exempt. In the same way, he says, the sons of God don't have to pay any tax to God because they are exempt. God is the emperor of the universe and we don't have to pay the tax. So Tom, Dick and Harry may pay tax for it, but... Uh, the sons of God, by which he means the truly spiritual ones which are on the path of the divine, they can consider themselves exempt. All this religious taxing, all this like in the Middle Ages, people had to pay one-tenth of their crops and everything. He says this, the spiritual people are exempt because they, have, they are taxed completely. 
they don't give 10% to God. They have given 100% to God already. They belong to God. They are the sons of God. Such people don't need to be taxed because they are already fully taxed. They belong to God completely. And God is not taxing their own sons. That is why many spiritual people, having had this feeling along the history, they were a bit of mavericks, rebels, Rumi and Omar Khayyam and Ramakrishna and whatever, they felt like they did not belong to this institutionalized religion of their time. They were a bit madmen, rebels, mavericks. They simply liked to be alone and they simply said they don't need to pay anything. It is a feeling which even the notorious Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, when he was asked, they were making in his ashram a lot of tax fraud. And people said, but Bhagawan, you who are supposed to be a Buddha, an enlightened person, you basically do hear something a la Gurjiev, you refuse to pay tax to the government and so on, and basically that's supposed to be an act of theft, right? You are basically, they will, if they catch you, they will put you behind bars, because <coughs> it's kind of an act of theft. And Bhagawan Sri Rajneesh said, the Buddhas are tax-free. It's kind of, nobody can impose taxes on a Buddha. I am a Buddha and I don't feel like paying any tax to anybody because it's kind of, I am the son of God, I am exempt of taxes. According to this teaching, you have this teaching everywhere, I have seen it on others and others who felt it, who felt things exactly this way, that once you are on this path of enlightenment and you have reached something there and you are completely belonging to your path, that you are completely belonging to God, then it's kind of the usual rules applying to the other human beings don't apply to you. Funny enough, there seems to follow a miracle here where he says, uh, go and pick up, uh, find a fish, and uh, you'll find uh, four drachma coin and give it. We don't really know if this was happening, actually, because nobody says, and Peter went and did so, and lo, he found the four drachma coin, and like big miracle. It sounds completely absurd, actually, we don't even know if there was a four drachma coin. Sounds as a very strange unit of measure. But the funny thing, or the thing is there, is that this may be as well a metaphor. The symbol of the fish, a fish with a four drachma coin, like eye of the prophet who was swallowed by a big fish, Jesus himself being related with the symbol of the fish in later Christianity. We don't really know what this metaphor is, but it appears like Jesus says, okay, not upsetting people, let us pay it pro forma. It's like play the religious game of the day so that the sheep will sleep quietly but you be what you are, know that inside you, you are a son of God, and because you are the son of the emperor of this universe, you are exempt of any tax paying in this universe, because you are the son of the king, you are the son of the emperor. So in this way, it's a very beautiful moral, which actually encourages the spiritual beings to understand their own value a little bit better, and to kind of stand apart. You'll notice that many people, Francis of Assisi or Rumi or all the others which I said, they had this rebellious attitude to other people's money, religion, taxes. They like considered, I don't owe anything to anybody. I belong to God. All my allegiance is to God. Whatever I do, I do for God. Whatever is for God. People, it's kind of the thought which some people have 
uh, it's a parallel, it's a parenthesis where some people say, I won't give money to this beggar because he is a drunk and if I give him five dollars, he will go and buy himself booze and get drunk again. So basically, if I give him alms, I actually harm him, I don't help him. It's better not to give him anything because then you rather help him. So in the same way, some of these uh, people on the side of Jesus, they will say, if you just pay tax to your society, like to your church or whatever, your church is going to sponsor the war in Iraq or is going to sponsor God knows what state-paid terrorists to put a video camera up everybody's ass or whatever else they want to do. Do you want to do that? No. You live in a deeply demonic world where the leaders are the way they are. It's kind of you don't owe any allegiance to any of this because you belong to God and this kind of world is a bit of world which does not justify any religious hope, any harmonious hope, <coughs> or whatever. It's a pretty revolutionary statement, again, of Jesus, camouflaged under this, under this famous metaphor with the four uh, drachma coin in the mouth of a fish and all the others. But the implication of the parable before, he says, a king never takes tax from his own children. A king taxes only the others, the rest of the population. So in this way, it's the same here. He always places the sons of God, the spiritual people, in a different category. That is also a way of building faith. Jesus is very smart. He all the time tells them, even the hairs on your head are accounted for. You are the salt of the earth. What does this give? This gives self-confidence. This gives faith. A man who thinks like this, or a woman, they start thinking in a more self-confident way, and they realize, now I can perhaps also walk on water, because I'm a bit special. If you don't think you are special, you won't be able to walk on water. It's a kind of cultivating something of your ego without being egoistic. It's an ego mixed with humbleness at the same time, because you do it and you really believe in yourself like Jesus. He always believes so much in himself, but at the same time he manages to be humble and effective at the same time. So this is the message. I will stop here because we had all this heavy duty thing. We'll continue. We also unfortunately started a bit late today. Uh, hopefully Thursday's lecture will be shorter. Definitely it would be shorter because it's satyam or whatever. So remember that Thursday I will try to start earlier, so don't be taken by surprise if you find me talking already, because um, we are trying to go a little bit deeper, else this gospel will never be finished. We have been, this is the 11th lecture already, and we are 13. only halfway. 13th. 13th. The 13th? The 13th. <coughs> Let's see questions or findings. Um, we have no doubt in the enlightenment of Buddha, so how come he preaches differently than Jesus, that there is no God? Everybody preaches in a slightly different way. Every enlightened being is reflecting the divine <coughs> to their own nature. Some people play divine madmen, some people are wild, some people are humoristic. About Jesus they say he never laughs in his life, given, for example, uh, it sounds hard to believe, but some people say so. Um, 
And uh, basically what, what I'm trying to get is that this reflection of enlightenment can be really, really very different from human being to human being. Uh, Buddha is, first of all, Buddha is trying, because he creates a new religion in an environment where there is a powerful religiousness already, he has to come with something really new. That is why in Buddhism, the psychology of Buddhism, the Theravada especially, and this one, of course copied by the Tibetan Buddhists afterwards, it's pretty ridiculous sometimes. They say, no, we don't try to reach samadhi. Samadhi according to Vipassana. And when they describe what samadhi is, they don't describe samadhi of Patanjali. They describe samadhi as a kind of samyama, identification with object. That if you look at an elephant and you feel you have become the elephant, which is samyama, that's samadhi according to yoga. No, that isn't samadhi according to yoga or according to the Hinduism and that's a forcing of things but it's like all the time they take the highest name like what's the highest for you guys Hindus Samadhi right your Samadhi sucks Buddha suggests something better Nirvana Samadhi is a it's kind of a, always a typical thing which happens with all the religions when the Christianity came it took the Greek mysteries and made them sweep the floor with them. It's like the Greek mysteries were a stupid thing. The Greek mysteries were not that stupid, and they had a lot of spiritual things. But every new religion tries to demolish the previous one and to build on its ruins a little bit without scruples, because else people's allegiance will be split between the two. And therefore, Buddha, when he came to make the people believe strongly in what he did, he wanted to cut really deep through all the bullshit which was there before, making all sound ridiculous. Buddha says, there is no Atman. But then Buddha says, there is a Buddha nature. That's bullshit, because Atman is the Buddha nature. But it's true that in Hinduism, even today, I met five years ago, I met with a Swami from Rishikesh, he told me, uh, I said, what are you doing in this ashram? And he said, well, I don't know, but I feel that my Atman is with this Guruji from this ashram. The way he spoke, Atman was not the Supreme Self. It meant my emotions, my soul, my self in the meaning that Atman... But wait a second, Atman is not supposed to mean your preferences and your emotional things and what you feel. It's way beyond that. Atman is the... Supreme Self, it's the Divine Self. But still in Hinduism, they use the name Atman like this. And then Buddha is smart. He catches them by this and he says, Atman, <laughs> your Atman is not impermanent. Atman does not exist. When you die, your Atman will die. There is nothing permanent. He denies the permanence of Atman. Why? Because he simply uses another meaning of the name. He uses Samadhi in another way, he uses Atman in another way, and yes, he uses God in another way. Because people of India, they have as many gods as many villages. For them, God <laughs> means a lot of strange entities, some of them even not very spiritual, which are promoted at the level of God. Like there are some villages in northeast India, they really have some weird gods, which you can ask yourself easily if those are demons or devas, or whatever they are, because they sound really, really strange, and really, really wicked, and weird, and revengeful, and twisted, and whatever. So in this way, this is the story. It's easy to say God, but you see, God is different things. You will see that even Jesus, 
is trying to push the concept of God deeper. He takes the God of the Old Testament and he says that guy was a liar and the father of all lies and God is your father actually and is the one is God is not the one who is going to take revenge on you and punish you. God is the one who loves you like a loving father and will give you himself, will give you anything, will give you everything. And in this way uh, the concept of God itself changes. And Actually, as far as I remember, I must admit I never read all the sayings of Buddha, so I cannot vouch for it. Never ever in what I read from Buddha, he doesn't declare there is no God. As far as I remember, the famous paragraph where he speaks about it, he says, nobody will care and nobody can demonstrate and in the end nobody will ask you if this world was conceived by Lord Ishvara, by Deva Ishvara or not. He says, if this is so or not, it doesn't matter because all that matters is your action and in your end of the life you are going to be asked about what you did and what your actions have been. Basically, he tries to say, faith is just faith, but it blossoms in your actions. That's what we want to see, who you are and how you act in the world. And uh, there are two or three statements like this by which Buddha simply seems to imply uh, if Deva Ishvara created this world or not, it's completely irrelevant. But he never says Deva Ishvara actually does not exist. He simply says this issue is irrelevant because he is having a very pragmatic point, like start acting today rightly, because else, I told you, faith is a slippery thing. Many people will say, I have faith in God. All the Protestant and Anglican churches, they have supported this crazy thing, that if you have faith, you can be saved. They never spoke about love. They spoke about love as charity. Faith. Therefore, all the stupid British pirates in the East India Company who are trafficking opium and infecting China with opium and destroying millions of lives by addicting them to opium just to make money on tea, just to become rich, you know, all these Protestant Anglican materialistic assholes, they consider themselves still very much superior to the Chinese and the Balinese and all the others because those are heathens and we have Jesus. I mean, the, 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 the skipper, the captain, the owner of an East India company trafficking opium and being owner of clippers and frigates and whatever, what God did he have? He was a man going straight to hell. That man was a demon going straight to hell. But he considered himself favored by God because he was British and Christian and when he died he could say oh Lord Jesus I'm dying and so on. Does that save you? After you have done a life of shit is it enough to save Lord Jesus when you die and then uh, the priest comes and gives you some fake absolution and that's all? Buddha says no, 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 no. It's not the faith which matters. You can profess a lot of faith and be a total jerk. What matters is what you do. That is why I must admit that Buddha, for the sake of shocking his contemporaries, and because the Brahmanism of India at that time had become completely drowned in rituals, and the Brahmins were reported as being assholes and jerks and everything, Buddha simply had to give them a cold shower to preach something completely different. So he simply shocked all the foundations of things and he said rely on this, rely on this, this is what the, this is and he denied Atman, he denied everything but actually if you look in the cracks 
if you look in the clefts of what Buddha says, you still find out that he speaks about something eternal, that he speaks about something infinite, that he speaks about compassion. Where do they come from? It's easy to say compassion comes out of the void, but how can compassion come out of the void if that void is empty? That void is purusha, it is something, and actually Buddha speaks about God, but presenting God in a peculiar way of his own as the great void or the Buddha nature. And that is why we can simply say that Buddha is tricky. He is a very good lawyer. He would make a very good lawyer. He argues, he turns everybody around his finger, and he manages to prove that white is black and black is white. He just pulls the rabbit out of his head, simply. That's all he does. He presents the same truth in his own words, trying to make a difference, like, I want to be different from all what's happening around. Listen to my message. It's like this. Eventually... The Buddhists also believe in helping the soul after death. They also believe in rituals. They also believe in clairvoyance. They also believe in the astral body. They also believe in praying. They also believe in doing this. They do exactly what the Christians do and the others, while they pretend there is no God. But ultimately, when you come to the fruit of the tree, like what you do in the daily life, you go to the temple, you light candles, you light, you light lamps, you pray, you offer, you give alms for the souls of the dead, and you do exactly what your brothers from the West do, while claiming that there is no God. This claim, as Buddha says, is unimportant, because your deeds are the ones that define you. Only that at the same time, the statements of one like Rumi, of one like Ramakrishna, of one like Shivananda, and of course of one like Jesus, ultimately, they are more clear. While Buddha is caught in a pincher and he simply has to create something different, these other people, they, were, they allowed themselves to explore fully this dimension of God as having a person, a personality, and being able to interact with it in another way. Many people say, uh, there is a statement there, that the actual historical Buddha had reached only Nirvikalpa Samadhi, only is a funny word used here, and that actually, funny enough, there were people later in the Buddhist tradition, such as Milarepa himself and others, Shang, uh, the famous Padma Sambhava, Guru Rinpoche, who actually reached the full Bhava Samadhi, so they are actually more de developed spiritually than the Buddha Shakyamuni himself, that it's like if you take the whole Buddhist tree from 2,500 years ago until today, it's not that Buddha was the best and uh, he was the most clear and the one who had this mission from God to lay down the foundation of this. But that some of the later Buddhists, they are even better than the Buddha himself in terms of spiritual development. But out of modesty and out of humbleness, they didn't need to say, you know what, I've become better than the Sakyamuni guy, you know. And what would they have done? They would have simply disturbed a lot of minds who didn't need to be disturbed. And what did it cost them to say, well, I have reached to the truth to which the great Buddha has reached. And then they put a lot of teachings in the mouth of Buddha. Like, for example, the Tibetan Buddhist is using a lot of gods, goddesses, tantric methods and so on, which do not exist in the Theravada. And the Southern Buddhists vehemently deny that Buddha ever taught such a thing. And the Tibetan Buddhists nonchalantly say, you don't know, 
Buddha has had also some secret disciples and some secret teachings. And one day he came to the border of Tibet, which sucks because in those days, 2500 years ago, there was no Tibet. Tibet was kind of a wild west place, nothing, and so on. And but they simply claim it, and it's like we've got. It's kind of a guy like Padma Sambhava. He actually came forth with things which Buddha never was able to come forth with which can mean also that this famous Guru Rinpoche or Padma Sambhava was even more enlightened than the Buddha himself. But he never had to bang his head and say, Me Tarzan, I am more enlightened than Buddha. Because it served the cause to bow down with humbleness and to say we bow down to the great Buddha, the whatever. It doesn't cost anything to be humble and to do this. And it actually helped the whole institution. It helped the whole lineage that they all the time doesn't cost anything to push Buddha a little bit higher and to say, look, Buddha was actually the highest of the highest. Good. If it makes people feel good, it's okay. So in Buddhism, they just <coughs> go according to Sambhava wasn't born already enlightened? According to the history of his life, as far as I can remember, yes, they say so. You mentioned that... Um Fill yourself with the Holy Spirit through prayer is important. Um, how does that relate to like some yoga practices? Um, some are more like exponentially more effective than others. How does how is prayer on that scale? Already pranayama becomes very powerful in the advanced levels because prana ultimately is the one energy of God. That is why some people in pranayama mixing up the crown chakra and meditation and pranayama, they witness that this energy of pranayama starts taking you somewhere there. But uh, the only things in yoga which come close to this are working on the self, on the soul, in anahata chakra, and especially working on sahasrara and on ajna chakra. Laya yoga, doing rising of kundalini in the high chakras, and all the methods which work with this, like working with shining white light and uh, in the color streams and so on, these are the methods by which you can say that the yogi, the blessing technique and other things like this, these are methods by which you can say, consecration, by the way, uh, these are methods by which you can say that the yogi is knocking at that door. That means it's tapping at the highest levels. So you're saying that prayer is very effective? Prayer is very effective. And does it very matter direct the method. source? I mean, there are different, a lot of different, you know, we could, the Muslim faith or some Baha'i faith. I would advise people to take bona fide prayers which belong to a great institutionally established religion which has worked and delivered to this humanity enlightened beings. That means if you know that Rumi practiced Sufi prayer and his prayer brought him to enlightenment, then you can take the prayers of Rumi and of Omar Khayyam, because you mentioned Islam and so on, and simply turn them, because those have worked for others, they will work for you as well. If Rumi decided that prayer can be whirling, dervish dance, then even that can be used as a prayer, but you have to do, of course, all the things, because there is a breathing, a visualization, a certain music, there is a whole methodology. That will work. The prayer of the heart and any other prayer from any religion which has indeed delivered results 
because again I'm saying there are prayers which are maybe not fully religiously devoted to the one God. For example, there are many prayers which are used by shamans and medicine men in animistic, African animic, Australian aboriginal animic or whatever which don't refer to God. They are just prayers to the spirits of rain to produce rain. <coughs> Such a prayer, of course, will not give you the Holy Spirit. Right? But other prayers which are focused directly to the one God, they would automatically lead you the right way. Is there any visualization uh, associated with the prayer of the heart? Or is there are some. There are some. But uh, <laughs> mostly like visualizations of energy, like how to draw the breath inside and then to visualize Jesus. And a little bit. I don't remember now any classical one which comes. When I'll remember, also. As you mentioned, that there will be uh, the sixth of August uh, is some special date for this transfiguration. Can we do something on this date? It would be nice that any one of you wants to celebrate that. That should do a 24-hour prayer. That would be the best. Mm. Well, enough for tonight. We'll continue Thursday. There is still a Jesus lecture because we have lost one last week and we have to catch up.